Vintage Sustainability, a podcast where Gordon and John look back at 25 years of sustainable building. So, Gordon, we've got Simon Murray with us. Yes. Eminent Chartered Solaire. Simon, we've known Simon, ooh. 20 years at least. 20 years at least, yes. One of our, 30. One of our, one of our colleagues. Colleagues at the university, yeah. So, Simon, just to kick things off, as I said, you're an eminent Chartered Surveyor. Just tell us how, you're, how eminent you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, good afternoon, John. <laughs> um, eminent uh, Chartered Surveyor. Well, that's one way of putting it. Um, as John said, uh, I'm a chartered surveyor by profession. I've been chartered for approximately 40 years now. Uh, as well as being a chartered surveyor, I'm also a former regional chairman of RICS in the Northeast. I also sat on the Council for England and Wales, uh, International Governing Council. I've also been uh, currently, well, former chair of the assessment panels for the APC, uh, as well as. Um, lots of things associated with the RICS in terms of uh, as well as that I've uh, been uh, was a board member of Constructing Excellence in the North East for 12 years and I found out when they appointed a new uh, firm of uh, legal advisors for it that it was a six-year maximum term you shouldn't have been on so I stood down and after a couple of years I went back on on their advisory board but last year um, as my uh, work was coming to an end, I chose to uh, offer my uh, well, termination for that board. Well, we'll hope, but I hope to see yeah. Katrina uh, in another podcast later on. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And we should tell listeners that we're in the cafe at the Lane Art oh, Gallery yes, yeah. if they're wondering what all that sushing and squishing yes, yes. noise is. like a bit of background noise. like a bit of background yeah. noise. <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of that, that's what uh, my sort of... Uh, links are to that. I'm also uh, have been judged since the inception of the Constructing Excellent uh, in the North East Awards. I'm also uh, a judge for their national awards which happen at the end of the year. The, uh, the regional awards at the beginning of the year. I was, a f- I was involved in the RICS uh, awards but when I became chairman, I had to step down because it could have been seen as a bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah. Also, on the regional uh, landmark awards, the formal awards that were uh, done and managed by uh, Newcastle uh, Journal. Yeah. Oh, uh, I remember those for landmark yeah. awards. Yeah. I do remember you judging us, Simon. Yeah. I did, I remember. Office, you yeah, came in. Did, we yeah. didn't win, I remember. <laughs> well, I, I, I would have had. I would have had to declare an interest there, uh, yeah. and that's why he didn't win. He's obviously the best. So, so Simon, this is truly eminent. Isn't yes, this, it this is, is very eminent. Yes. So, can I just ask you how you got the gig in the first place? How did um, you evolve into being a judge on these board panels? Well, um, as well as um, being a chartered surveyor, I'm a former. Um, uh, academic at Northumbria University. I worked there in the 90s and the early noughties. I then got the gig, as you put it, John, <laughs> as the regional strategic advisor for the built environment in the northeast. So in that role, I acted as a liaison between uh, education and training providers, local authorities, central government policy to influence a strategy for the construction and built environment sectors in the northeast is how to move forward which was an interesting role but also an extremely frustrating role in terms of our sector being slightly reticent about embracing change 
and moving forward. And I remember at the time I used to quote things by saying, well, it'd be great if we could get out of 19th century work practices, let alone the 20th century. But let's come back to that later. I've also, uh, uh, I then became national education manager for construction skills, which was then the sector skill umbrella group and that organization employed just under 2,000 people nationally. So um, it was working with um, government uh, departments, the Department of Further Education and Science, uh, HEFKE, Higher Education, and uh, looking at uh, sort of the vision how education could work with industry to provide the skill set needed to move forward. I then got a job as the uh, National Research Manager for their Future Skills Unit, and that was interesting because I had a pot of millions of pounds a year so I work with private uh, research organisations, which uh, also uh, consultancies, uh, things like Davis Langdon, who had their own research unit, yeah. but also work with the university sector. We work with Salford, Loughborough, anyone could put beds in, and it was and it was to look at future skills. And yeah. as we're talking about sustainability yeah. and environmental issues, those were ones that we were sort of uh, keen on, to put it mildly. So, Even more eminent than yeah. I thought. And <laughs> after that, uh, it was interesting because it was quite ironic as the Sector Skills Council had decided to close down the Future Skills Unit. There was, shall we say, some internal politics oh, and dynamic never. which will remain anonymous <laughs> in terms of that. Needless to say, whatever you do, don't bring it to the attention of the director. That you know what. So when you were doing this judging of things... Yeah. Did you find that a difficult task? Was it onerous? How did you come no, to I, actually, Was there conflicts within oh, the groups of oh, judges yeah, yeah. and things? Well, always were, because you never, depending upon the number of the judges you have, because invariably the categories, um, as you said, uh, have grown. So, you know, it started off probably you're looking at six or eight categories, <coughs> it's up now to 12 or 15. Oh, right. um, but also, since then, in terms <coughs> of the constructing excellence ones, which are the largest in the region, mm-hmm. Their categories have grown, but also they have uh, another section called the Generation for Change, which are the young professionals. So you get uh, uh, young professionals of the future, future leader, um, uh, apprentice, uh, which is a new apprenticeship degree pathways and stuff like that. So I'm involved in that as well. But obviously, when I went back to Northumbria to help out with the degree apprenticeship programmes, I had to sort of um, declare an interest in there. But in terms of what you say, I, I really enjoyed it, but mm. you will, in certain years, you will have projects which are outstanding and everyone agrees. But other years, you'll have three or four projects which are much of a muchness. Oh. And is, uh, but st- is there still a sustainability award, Simon? Yeah, there is it. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, when I first started judging, there wasn't a sustain. That was one of the yeah. things which has come about. So when was this? What year would you put this at? Where there wasn't a sustainability award? At the beginning of, of the... Uh, Probably 2000? 2001, two, yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Three, uh, yeah. Sustainability is now... It's, it's an integral part of all the assessment criteria for yeah, all the categories yeah. where it wasn't it was seen as yes, yes. a separate thing That's now, now it's now <laughs> it's, part embedded part. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's embedded in every module yeah. Yeah. universally yeah. Yeah. yes yeah. We, 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 john and i often were pushing to have separate sustainability modules on the 
construction courses and design courses and everyone said well sustainability is embedded in every module but you know yeah. anyhow let's not go yeah, 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 yeah. Whether, so, it, whether it is or it isn't <laughs> so I've got exhibit yeah. A here Simon right so this is because this is vintage sustainability I thought we'd like go back into the annals and this is a a concept by Cademan in the year 2000 in the academic literature and I don't know if you remember this the vicious circle of blame oh right yeah and it was um, there's like four participants an occupier says we would like to have sustainable buildings but there are few available contractors say we can build sustainable buildings but developers won't ask for them Developer says we would ask for sustainable buildings but the investors won't pay for them and the investors say we would fund sustainable buildings but there's no demand for them and this right. was like quite famous at the time yeah. and I was wondering in that context where do you think you, you, there's a break in that in that circle where, where well, is that has it broken it has broken to some degree, but one of the biggest problems you will find in, in development and construction, as soon as you get into perceived recessionary times, yeah. people backtrack yeah. and they go into their little yeah. silos. It becomes a luxury item. And <coughs> simply when you look at it, the, you know, in terms of procuring uh, buildings or refurbishing the existing stock, it's still driven in the UK by time, cost and quality. And the biggest criteria is always cost. So when you look at a scheme, it's like uh, a developer who is just purely doing speculative development, they're not interested in the life cycle. They're interested in getting an asset which they can uh, develop as cheaply as possible and sell off as most expensive. In other words, increase the margin. Yeah. yeah? whereby people who are developers who are looking at the long longevity of the scheme are looking at that. And you get to this thing, what about if you specify better components, you'll have less, less replacement costs, but it's gonna, it's gonna be more capital costs, yeah? As opposed to looking at the life cycle of the de development. And one of the biggest problems which I've been involved with is whenever you get a scheme and a client or a developer is told it's gonna cost X amount, and it goes out to competitive tender or, or negotiated tender and the tenders come in and let's say someone said it's 20 million and it comes in and it's 22 million. What immediately happens is that the developer will go back to the designers or the uh, contractor, the developer and say, uh, get it back on to 20. To 20. Mm -hmm. So they carry out something which is, in my opinion, uh, misrepresented by the term value engineering exercise yes. yeah which anyone who knows what it is it's cost cutting yeah. and what gets cut out invariably tend to be those issues and items which are perceived to be the extra elements mm -hmm. and a lot of that is related to sustainability oh you know what we can we can we can get away with yeah. without having that so in terms of these these dilemmas yeah when you've been judging these buildings, has there been any building that's been a kind of a breakthrough building in terms of a thing that kind of made yeah. a bit of a difference in terms well, of this? I'll give you an example, which is probably 15, 20 years ago, and it was a building that you were involved with, and not unbeknown to me at the time, <laughs> but you actually went as an external consultant to it. 
the uh, swimming pool, the Olympic uh, swimming pool. Oh yes, yes, it's at Sunderland. Sunderland, yes. yes, yes. And you did a I did the Briam assessment, Briam assessment for yes, it. That right. was one of the buildings which you then started seeing there was a change in terms of what was required. But oh, right. there was lots of them. Uh, that was one of them, which was earlier where you could say that the actual designers were taking the impact of what they were specifying and designing uh -huh. into account in terms of its environmental impact. Oh, yeah. yeah. And now if jump forward 10 years or so, yeah. you look at Science City in Newcastle yeah. and you look at all of their buildings now, the drivers of sustainability, you've noticed that virtually all of them are looking at different types and they're not just solar panels, ground source, heat pumps, a whole different. But also they've worked very closely with Newcastle City Council because they've developed a district heating system there yeah. for the whole of the site. Yeah. And I'm of that age where district heating systems were a thing of the 1960s yes. and 70s, yes. and then all of a sudden they got abandoned. Yes, and now, right. you know, as people say, yes. you know, it's just reinventing the wheel. Yeah. But in terms of those projects, you look at that, where you have an actual coordinated uh, strategic overview of development, you can actually start identifying drivers and saying, well, if you're going to develop here, you need to consider these, and so, as you mentioned, so it's most of planning is it, the yeah, kind of not, rather than just looking at development in isolation. But obviously, as a judge, we are looking at those things in isolation. But over the last five, six years, the number of developments which have been built in Science City are ticking the boxes there, virtually every one of them. And I think probably the the building project of the year. Out of the last six, seven years, there's three of the projects have been based on that, yeah, on yes. that site. Uh -huh. Site meaning oh, right. the, yes. the actual, yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah, some really good things. But of course, when you look at uh, the built environment, um, you're not just looking at new development as a judge. You're looking at the refurbishment of existing. So, so for me, taking uh, for instance, you look at the fire station in Sunderland. Oh, yeah. yeah, that. That's now a sort of cafe, music yes. venue, uh, performance, arts, etc. Um, Darlington uh, Civic uh, Hall at the, uh, the theatre. Projects like that where it's more difficult to try to bring in uh, the environmental considerations because you're dealing with an existing structure. Yeah. You're not starting with a blank piece of paper. Um, the co-op building in Newcastle, oh, which yes, is, that yes. was an interesting building there, yeah. where they were trying to Premier Inn. maintain the, uh, the the existing structure, but also try to, you know, Premier Inn is a Premier Inn, isn't it? <laughs> but in a building of that nature, it was an interesting project. But even under refurbishment and uh, maintenance projects, uh, the environmental impact has been driven, but it's how far do you go, you know, you know yeah. as, you, as you both know, we have got, well, as a country, we're supposed to be carbon neutral by 2050. And you look at the way government is backtracking on that, yeah. and it's almost, well, well, we're not going to be around in 2050, <laughs> so yeah. we can say anything we want now, yeah. and we can sign any yes, national and international agreement. Great, great targets, but no yeah. operation. But can, this, sorry, can I just yeah. make a mind, though, that... You, you mentioned the Sunderland Swimming Pool, which yeah. Arab put the uh, Andy Mason, Arab put an yeah. enormous amount of yeah. work on, on that. Yeah. 
how was it influ how was it influential? Was that something that everybody says, "Wow, this is a really sustainable swimming pool"? We'll we'll work on that along those themes now. Was this, was there something about it winning an award and giving it prominence that? Well, it, it was an interesting project over? because it was seen as it was obviously initially the the whole. Uh, background of that was going to be a training centre for the uh, 2012 Olympics, oh, yeah? Yeah. That, that was the background, <coughs> but also it was stimulating uh, urban regeneration, mm -hmm. which was in essence a piece of waste yes, land it was next to... Colliery cycle. Yeah, it no, was no, an... Was uh, well, yeah, next to the Stadium of Light, yes. but in terms of that, it was one of those buildings where previously, when you're judging, you'd seen certain little aspects of... The, the designers and the contractors looking at the impact, but there, there was appeared to be a conscious effort by the design team to actually address some of the long-term issues that were going to actually impact upon it. And when you see that sort of philosophy of design, you almost say, well, things are starting to change, as opposed to, you know, the, the flow chart where, you know, the investors are, are I always see that, and it's not because I'm a surveyor, where it's the money that drives it. It, yeah. is, it is accepted that in the UK, that's what procurement and development is driven by, yeah. the cost of it. But if you start looking at the peripherals of starting to get your planners to say, well, you know, a bit like the Scandinavian countries, unless it meets the, the needs mm -hmm. there and, and environmental and sustainability is a key criteria you don't get planning permission yeah, yeah. Yeah. so presumably because Sunderland City Council were the developer of that they weren't short termist and profit motive orientated as you've described previously it wasn't yeah. top of the agenda yes, yeah, that's right. yeah. but you know what I mentioned earlier is when you look at it when you look at speculative development spec well the, the easiest example of looking at speculative development is house building, isn't yeah. it? And house building is the only uh, subsector within construction and built environment that actually makes a big margin. And no matter who you look at, their profit on a single development is between 15 and 50%, whereby most construction projects, it's two, 3% at best. And they, they are the ultimate speculative developers. You have a piece of land, let's forget about yeah. land banks and stuff, but you develop stuff, yeah. you sell the houses, and you move on, yeah. and you make a profit. Yeah. And you, yeah. you, but I've always thought with developers, development's an incredibly risky business anyway. You know, you, mm. you've got to buy the land, you've got to get planning how much is bad enough as it is. You've got to worry about the market changing to the development yeah. period and all the rest of it. And then when it comes to innovative design or innovative technologies, that's just another layer of risk on yeah. top of that. I remember once asking a guy, saying, oh, how much did it cost to get a Briam excellent on this job? And he says, oh, two, about 2% on the price. And I says, well, that's not bad. He says, yeah, but my profit's only 10%, so that's 20% yeah. of my profits disappeared yeah. on this. And th at that time, there wasn't a premium on rents or capital values, really, for sustainability. I think one of the things, Simon, that might have changed over the last five years, perhaps, is the minimum energy efficiency standards, the MIES regulations. Yeah where, you know, to, to um, sell a building or let a building in sort of two or three years' time, you're going to have to have an EPC of C. So, yeah. so I mean, we talked to Kevin Muldoon-Smith 
a yeah. few months ago when he was looking at sort of investors looking at that portfolio and looking for those risky FNGs yeah. in their portfolio which might cost an awful lot to bring up bring up to, uh, standard. to standard yeah. so that that seems another yeah. area in, in the market where there's a pressure yeah. that wasn't there before there's some people yeah. thinking this might be a, a good portfolio a huge value but the value might be might be risky yeah. um, so yeah, that, yeah. that's an area we've been that's cropped up a couple of times in the chats that we yeah. <laughs> we sort of thought was interesting as well so that might yeah. change it assuming that the minimum energy efficiency standards do get progressed because you well, know they're out for consultation yeah. and you know that they, they, they are quite dramatic in terms of refurbishment of buildings i yeah. would have thought um, I, I totally yeah. agree, but if you take a step back and look at some of the, the policies and the national uh, frameworks which have theoretically existed in the past, I mean, 20 years ago, remember when Green Deal was going to be the big driver, yes. and that got scrapped six months before it came into effect. Yeah. Zero I, carbon homes by 2016. I worked, Zero carbon homes by 2016. Yeah, but yeah. that was the, the code for sustainable homes, remember yes. that? And it was being brought in, uh, code step one, step, code yeah. two, code three. Code, and we, when I was the national uh, research manager for the F Future Skills Unit, we did a couple of research projects and we were looking at schemes that were compliant with uh, uh, stage three and stage four. But before it got to stage five, the government scrapped it. Yes. So all of a sudden, you look at these strategic planning mechanisms about how to make homes, in this mm -hmm. particular example, more energy efficient and almost ideally it's, it's the end of stage six it was supposed to be carbon neutral yes. is that all of a sudden when the going gets tough excuse the expression yes. it just throw, it goes out the window and you go well what was all that about yes. that's 10 15 20 years in the planning and you start the operation and then you just scrap it and i think one of the risks there as well is that the industry gets itself ready but then it, it finds that the plans not being followed through and then starts to think that it's not worth planning for any of these potential changes yeah. because they might they might get sort of shelved and it's a risk because people should now yeah. be saying i think no new gas boilers and homes from 2025 yeah. so you know it's going to be probably air source heat pumps yeah high energy insulation yeah presumably people designing volume build housing should be now yeah. looking at that they should be yeah. looking for their supply chain uh, for the, that technology and just get it right, but are they wondering yeah. if it'll get shelved at the last minute? Yeah, well, at, no, the, at the moment, <laughs> you used uh, a good example there, Gordon, air source heating pumps at the moment, um, you can get a grant for £5,000 to install one, but what they don't tell you when you're doing that, the minimum cost is uh, 16000 I think, yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. So if you're a homeowner <coughs> who wants to do it, are you, can you afford to pay eleven? 12,000 for that mm -hmm. under the thing that, well, as you mentioned earlier, risk. Yeah. And whenever you look at any form of development, there is always risk associated because it's not as if you're producing a, car, a tin of beans on one day, which is in the shops the following day. Yeah. Within development, it takes months at a minimum. And a lot, yes, most yeah. projects, the bigger projects, it's years. Yeah. And how how the markets can change and at the moment it's the first time in 15 years that house prices have fallen in the last 12 years and when you look at housing development your barracks your persimmon homes etc look at markets like that and all of a sudden oh, the 
the production goes down because why would you want to produce finished products in a market which is falling? What you do, you sit on your land bank, yeah. you wait till it recovers, and then you develop. Yeah. Innovative technologies. You, yeah. you know, we've come across various innovations. Has there been any which have been outstandingly successful or things which seemed like a good idea at the time or anything which springs to mind from your experience? That's a hard one because obviously whatever technologies are being used on any project or a series of projects will only be known to be uh, worthwhile once you've actually seen it in operation, yeah. once you've actually recorded, you've got data, information and evidence and a lot of the technologies uh, which are being developed, uh, it's looking at, I mentioned earlier about Science City, mm -hmm. obviously because Newcastle University is uh, one of the key partners yes, there. Yes. They work with the city council, but they also work with specific organizations who will either partially fund the developments, is every one of their, those developments there has a research project associated with it. Yeah. And as a judge, we, we've had, uh, because the, uh, the regional awards here is for the previous year, we do occasionally get data sets which say, the, you know, this type, oh. ground source heat oh, pump right, on yeah, this particular yeah, thing yeah. has saved us 73% um, in terms yeah. of energy. Yeah. That's the date and evidence rather than just anecdotal, oh, yeah. it's better. Uh -huh. Well, why are you using, um, you know, so, uh, solar panels and that? Yeah. Well, it's because everyone uses them, so, you know, we've sticked them up. Uh -huh. you know, it, it's, that's what you want. You want an evidence base yeah. to make informed decisions yeah. and say, this technology works, works really well this works but doesn't work as efficiently so if you're ever put in that situation where you have to choose one over the other you know where you can actually make the biggest change yes. i think legal in general are involved in science city and i think they've been quite innovative yeah. and enlightened really and you were involved with that as well weren't you Gordon, the whole science city thing yeah we i think we did the early district heating well we looked yeah. at all the options not district heating district cooling yeah. ground source there was the big yeah. borehole remember two kilometer borehole yeah. million pounds yeah. to get water down so yeah and we did the core building yeah. which was one of the first ones yeah. which uh, uh, got it really good yeah. but wasn't it was designed to be connected to the district mm -hmm. but it was built mm -hmm. before the district all oh, right yeah. so I see it's connected now yeah okay that's great Simon true you have lived up to your eminent label. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs>